Hello, and welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. My name is David Vanderveen. I've been fortunate enough to build businesses around the world with thousands of entrepreneurs. You can find out more about me at davidvanderveen.com. But, you know, as I've traveled the world and, and had these opportunities to meet and work and, and alongside a lot of very interesting people, the question that I keep getting is, how can I create the life that I want? How can I create the brand, the behaviors, the, the culture that motivate and drive me? And so this podcast is dedicated to those questions. It's interviewing other people who are on that journey, as well as telling some of my own stories that I hope will help anyone who's wanted to start their own company, create their own brand, build their own life, figure out how to do it for themselves. The simple answer is there are no simple answers, but I think that if we work together and if we interact and if we workshop, we can figure out great ways to move forward in life and create a life worth living, a life with purpose and meaning, a life that makes us all a little bit more kick aspirational. Well, this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I'm so excited because we have another HPLT, another high-performance leadership training athlete that's joining me on Kick Aspirational. Um, Sam, am I supposed to call you Samantha when we're doing a professional interview, or do you go by Sam? How do you like to be referred to? All the above. All the Whatever above. Whatever's comfortable for you is comfortable for me. The S-Sauce. All right, Sam. I'm going to use Sam because I think we were calling you Sam in HPLT, but um, I have... Your new book. Well, it's not, how new is this? The Athlete Advantage is your book. I think it's fairly new, right? We were talking about this a bit. Um, yeah, you've last had, year. Yeah, you probably published this last year. Um, you know, so the Athlete Advantage, and I'm going to summarize it. You can correct me, but it's all about helping athletes kind of progress to the next stage of their life beyond sports. Is that a fair summary, or is there a better way that you like to describe it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Transition and connect the dots. Right. And. You know, you, we were talking quite a bit at HPLT. Um, we had a lot of fun on the last last afternoon together with Olivia. Um, really enjoyed our time together. But tell me, tell the listeners how you ended up publishing your own book, coaching, you know, collegiate and professional athletes on transitioning. Um, how, how did you get there? How'd you get here? Sometimes you have to start before you're ready, to be yeah. honest with you, because yeah. you're never going to be ready. But I, I had an unbelievable career in corporate America. I was managing a chemical portfolio. Honestly, I was challenged. I loved what I was doing, traveling the world, right? So for me, there was still something missing in the midst of greatness happening with me going up the corporate ladder. And it was all around how do I say thank you and give back in a scalable enough way where I feel like I'm not just going one-to-one? -one? Right. And that was something that kind of hit me, which then I started to formally mentor some athletes across a wide array of sports, football, softball, lacrosse, soccer. And then a couple of them came up to me and said, you need to be doing this full time. Well, I'm a this and that type of person. I, I don't I don't like to subtract subtract things. I like to add on and I like to keep it going. Sure, sure. But this was just because you can doesn't mean you should kind of rude awakening for me, a brick wall where they said, Hey, look, you helped me overcome some real life issues, some mental health issues. It kind of made me feel grossly negligent if I ignored it. Right. So for that, I was like, Okay, well, what can I do like right away? So I said, Okay, I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna write a book on how I did it. And that was like the catalyst that served my ability to write it in five weeks because I said, well, don't do tomorrow what you can do today. And I like started giving myself all these things. 
And then I said, I don't want to be subjected to other other people's timelines. So that's why I self-published. Yep. And from that point, that was it. And it's a beautiful book, by the way. It's hardcover. I bought mine on Amazon. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's really well written. Um, and one of the things that I love is your use of what I would call information technology, meaning the way that you're delivering the information in the book. Um, and I think I said this to you earlier. It's like it's very skimmable, meaning you know, if you're either not a great reader, you don't, you know, you want to kind of get through it quickly and understand the concepts and maybe dig deeper in the areas where you need help. You use highlighting, you have summaries at the end of chapters, you really kind of reemphasize the main ideas over and over and over again. And then you have like a workbook section where people can actually take what they've read and learned and apply it to their life. Is that, was that obviously that was intentional? Is that part of why you chose to create the book the way you did? Agree. There's different ways we all learn. So for me, the biggest thing is meet others where they're at and speak in the language someone can receive and include people, right? right. So if someone has the aperture and appetite to want to buy the book and better themselves, I need to meet them where they're at. So sometimes you're not a reader. Sometimes you actually like to listen. That's why I did the audible in my voice. So you right. can actually have the experience from my point of view. And then for the skim reader, right? not everything is applicable to your life at every single moment. So I wanted to create a structure where you can go to 10, chapter 10, go back to one, go to three, go to five. And then the way you can do that is I highlighted it in orange. I thought about color blindness. I thought about all these different things so I can meet you where you're at. So you never have an excuse to not do what is required to get the work done. There's lots of ways you can get through this information, whether you're an audible listener, whether you're a reader, um, you can, there's, you have some amazing interviews. I just read your canvas interview, which was really good. Uh, this podcast Thank will you. be available. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, so obviously you, you had some life skills that you were able to share with other people who were going through difficult parts in their journey. What was your journey as an athlete? How did you how did you start in sports? What was the kind of the pinnacle of your career? And how did you make your own transitions? Yeah, so I started when I was four years old. <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know. I started competitive at eight. So I never had a summer off until what was it like 23 years old? So I sports was life. It was a year round thing. I didn't have the ability to have internships at the time. You couldn't be paid for your likeness in sport, right? So it was really focused on the craft, the game itself. And, you know, I was very competitive, so I wanted to play always up. So I was a 12-year-old playing in the 18 and 16-year-old brackets. Wow. And I just yeah. always wanted to be at the bottom of the top. Wow. Yeah, because you will, you will reach whatever you're playing exactly. up to, right? Yeah. Exactly, right? So we talk about your base state, your standard versus your ideal. And the biggest thing for me is I created that at every stage in my life and career. And what it progressed to was I was getting not only hard skills, but soft skills through sport that I was able to make myself an even better player because then I focused on the strategy of the game, not just the physical aspects. So I started to garner the experiential skill sets early on and know the importance of them. I just didn't know I was applying them per se. Right. Climb the ladder, climb the ladder, you know, got better, got better, graduated. And um, right before graduation, I remember thinking, you know, if only I could replay my junior year. 
my junior year was my breakout year. It was oh, wow. where I was up for player of the year. It was, I was and first selection. What was the sport? What was the sport? Softball. Softball, right. And for, for me, it was just everything, you know, the movie Matrix. Have you ever seen it? Yes. Love, okay. love the Matrix. Yeah. Everything slows down. I right. felt in sport, I was at a level where I could see the ball move in real time. Wow. It was that slow. It wow. felt game slowed down for me. And right. um, I didn't play in the Olympics or at least aspired, you know, I aspired to play in the Olympics, but I didn't get there. They'd taken it out of the Olympics. So when oh, really? I graduated, oh yeah. I didn't realize that. When was that? I graduated in 09. Now it's okay. reinstated. It's back. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Why, did the, why did they take that, it out? Do you know why they took it out? To be honest with you, I don't recall. I, I remember the USA was dominating quite a bit. And that last mm. year, Japan ended up, was it Japan? I think it was either Japan or Canada won. I think okay. it was Japan. And it was like a rude awakening for me that my peripherals and goal sets were all tied to sport and I had nothing outside of it. Right. And that's what led to, you know, my identity crisis and all that, which I was forced to adapt. So, or so was that after like you were finishing university and then you were like, I've got to figure out something to do. Is that, is that what happened or was there, was it before graduation? No, it was literally at graduation. I looked left and right. It was 2009, right after the, the economy Stock market crashed. Yeah, yeah. And I had this chemistry degree and no idea how to apply it. Wow. Wow. I, it, I didn't have any internships or anything. Right. Cause you were playing soft. You're like, cause when, and you're at, you were at Pitt, right? So university yes. Pittsburgh, is that, am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah. So you're at your, and when you're in a, your NCAA division one, is that, am I I'm guessing here? Is that yeah. accurate, more or less? So you're D one. And when you're playing a D one sport, I mean, I'm surprised they didn't even let you take chemistry because it's basically a full-time job, right? Like you're, what was your schedule like when you were in university? Just so people get a little bit of a glimpse into that world. Yeah. And I'm glad you, you said Pitt. I shame on me for not uh, talking about my alma mater. <laughs> no, no, no. It's great. Well, here's the problem is, so, is we know each other and have had these conversations. Yeah. So now I'm, we know what I we're know, talking about. I, I just know. have to make sure everybody else does. You're doing a great job. No, you're, you're, you're keeping me along. You're holding me accountable. I love it. Um, right. So yeah, my schedule is crazy. Uh, a lot of times people will say, athletes will say, oh, they wake up at four and their lifts are at five. That is not year round. That's normally right. you know, in or out of season. So yeah. on on a typical day, I I definitely was up around six six thirty. A lot of times I had class at eight. Then I would go straight to practice lift. It was in chunks of anywhere from five to six hours of all in type of effort. Right. Then I would have to go to class, and um, my labs were four hours for one credit. So I would normally right. take my lab at eight o'clock, and it would be eight to eleven. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So it's pretty rigorous. So that's like, <laughs> so when you get to, when you get to, the, I won't skip too far forward, but when you get to a job world where like an eight hour day or whatever, I mean, it's like, oh, this is no big deal. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're really busting your, busting your balls, whatever. You're working really hard in, in university, yeah. playing sports, doing a chemistry major, um, doing it at a D1 level, and then you graduate. And, you know, for, you went from what you said, 23 years of no summers of full time applied to sport of this is your life. Like, what was the yeah. 
Well, tell me about that journey. Like, like you find yourself with a diploma and some really great, you know, probably a you know wall full of trophies and medals and all those things. But then what? Then then who are you? That was a problem. I had no idea. Yeah, I really had no idea. It was a cliff dive. It was a fall that was so steep, I couldn't breathe. I didn't. I was very fortunate. I never had to deal with depression, anxiety. I just always understood who I was and I always leaned into that. And I always used sports, you know, as my solitude and escape, or I would go to the gym. I I created the habits and rituals that would carry me through anything that could potentially spiral me. So I, I've always had that. So then when you strip that away and my fabric and DNA is embedded in that, I didn't know what to do. I I mean, and then the market collapsed and I have, you know, I, I looked at a resume and it was pretty bleak. (laughs) They're looking for softball playing chemistry majors. You were like the perfect fit. Perfect fit. Perfect. (laughs) So, I mean, to be honest with you, I had, most people think it was quick, but for me, it felt like a lifetime. So it's all relative. Sure. Two weeks. I I went back down to Miami because that's where I'm originally from Miami, Florida. And, um, I literally went through it. I said, you know what, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna feel all the feels. I'm gonna feel bad, I'm gonna bask in it, but then I'm gonna get to work. Uh, There's a chance and a choice and I'm gonna choose my hard. And when I made that decision, I started to go to the gym. I started to go to the things that I was very comfortable. I knew how to lift weights. Mm -hmm. I, you know, wanted camaraderie. Like I wanted those things and I was thinking about 1% gains each day. I stopped wow. thinking about 100% gains. So that happened pretty quick, within two weeks. The steps, baby steps, effectively. The wow. cumulative average of the gains of 1% better each day is where the magic is. If you right. go for 100% days and then you don't hit it, like, wh- wh- where are well, you? Well, and then if you if you miss your 100% days, you feel terrible and you take days off, then you're back to ground zero, right? You never really get anywhere. 100% it's those it's those small steps those incremental steps that really deliver value over time that's that's yeah. a network that's networking right that's a scaling that's a j curve um so you so so what did you do next what did, after two weeks what was the did you get a job did you apply to schools what, what was the next step so i didn't know what to do and the one thing i can say that a lot of us athletes have is we don't like to ask for help because we know how to win we like to, to do hard stuff. You're right? just at the top of a mountain. Yeah. Just just trying to figure it out. And then I realized real quick that I'm creating the habits and rituals, but it's okay to ask for help. Uh, asking for help isn't asking for an easy out. What I'm doing is I am asking for support to get me a door. Mm. Once the door exists, I'll, I'll break it down. I right. know what I bring. So I, I was very comfortable with my my values and what I stood for because I knew how to be a leader. I wasn't trying to be a manager. I knew I had everything in me that made me more than capable, equipped, and prepared. I just needed the opportunity set to interface with the person. Right. Um, so I called life skills. So at the time, the University of Pittsburgh had just started its Pitts life skills. So I was there when it had its year two. Oh, wow. Uh, year one and year two. Yeah. So I was very fortunate in that regard. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of athletes going to get their MBAs. So sometimes what I started to realize when I asked for help 
they, they got me connected to a dean slowly but surely i said well you know what someone has to be the first right someone has to be the first and a lot of times that's why that's why people don't take the step because they don't want to be the first because what happens if it doesn't work but what happens if it does those are the things that started to trigger my mentality where my you know subconscious um you know self was just like this is this is what it is and i started to get this right my mind right and then all the the bricks started to fall in play and i went in front of a a panel of uh, very traditional legacy thinking individuals that looked at me and were no before yeses type of people yeah. and they were going to tell me all the reasons why i shouldn't be in an mba program because i didn't have any work experience and normally when you're in a graduate program you come with two to three work experience yeah yeah, yeah. quality i mean there, there's reasons for it and cross-functional collaboration well for me i'm a leader on the field now i had to listen to hear not listen to speak and i had to be kind of in the back and learn how to lead from the back because I had to learn from others who are in it and I didn't have any exposure into it, but I had the leadership skill sets that they didn't have that they were coming to the MBA program for. Right. Um, so that's kind of how it happens. And um, I got in and the rest was history. I told them literally on the interview process, I said, I'm going to be your best bet. Right hundred percent there is no doubt in my mind they looked at me they were like well but tell me more what does that mean and i said well i will be working for a fortune 100 company one day so i'm going to be your best bet so either you take the best bet or someone else will but right. you know what i really want it to be pit and they did and that's, my first job was fortune 100. So, so and i think that's so good you know the one of the things i've noticed i mean i'm a little little older down the road but you know one of the things i've noticed is as you restart new things, one of the best things is having a work ethic and the ability to think clearly because, yeah, of course, if you're coming into a business school, business program, you haven't worked in business, you haven't, didn't do a, a degree in business. Okay. Those are sort of checks against you. But I think to your point, yeah, you know, the, the typical credentials might not have been there, but the more important things are there you know you know how to win you know how to work hard you're you're smart you're obviously you had a chemistry degree you know you know how to study you work you can work around the clock you can outwork everybody else in that program Thank and you're right and i think that's that's what I, when when you're looking at people i think that's where sometimes the traditional hr check the boxes which you do have to do to a degree sort of misses the real gems um it, it, i was talking to um Luke McCarthy, who was also at HPLT. Yeah, and, Luke. And Luke, yeah, he's, he's awesome. Um, he's the man. But we were talking about this, about he went to business school as well. And and um, and then, you know, he's he's been in finance at a really prominent company. And, you know, he said this too. He said, he said, you think that everyone coming into these finance jobs are all coming out of a finance background. He said, actually, at the best finance companies, yeah, they, they're coming from there, but they're also looking for great people not just did you did you take the test and check the box and you know because they're not looking for people to check the boxes they're looking for people to think creatively to be able to work hard to 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 you know outperform and that doesn't happen by checking boxes that happens by being a person who's a who's a performer um so i think that's just that's fascinating my father said that when he, he was uh he, he got into johns hopkins medical school for his specialty but had kind of had to work to get there mm -hmm. and he said, you know, it was really intimidating walking in there because it's all the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, the thing that he figured out pretty quickly was um, 
anyone can be the best if you're willing to put in the work and you know and 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 anyways he ended up you know being the president of his college of surgeons but i think that that you know it's the same sort of mentality it's the same sort of attitude and it's um you know learning to love to work is one of the best things we can do for ourselves it's it's just tremendous so 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 you went to to business school at pitt uh you did the work you got the degree did you graduate in the top of your class Honestly, I don't. Do they do they measure that? I don't know if they always measure that or not. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not sure. For me, those things didn't didn't matter yeah. as long as I could apply the concepts. I was always big on that, right? Yeah. Just yeah. Show me the results in your application of knowledge, because I'm a big believer that wisdom doesn't come with age; it actually comes with applied knowledge and correct. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, keep making the same mistakes over and over again if you want to. Get, get yeah. that, most people get it wrong, but for me. Um, I think the biggest thing that I got was I, I lived abroad. So I lived in Marseille, France. Oh yeah. A little bit. Um, Down south. You, ha you have to get uncomfortable. So I'm always in search of that. And sometimes that's different things at the gym. Sometimes that's like immersing myself in a space where I don't even know the language. Sometimes it's about getting into a boardroom full of, you know, 80 year old men, to be honest with you, that they, they say they want diversity and they say they want stuff, but like. Yeah, maybe yeah. in a box, maybe in a box over there, right? Right, so I always appreciate, I always appreciate those things. And I've always been someone who likes to do hard things and actually live it, not just right. say it, but live it. Um, and yeah, like my first week on the job at Honeywell, which by the way, Normally, Fortune 100, what takes three months to onboard? Like, right, right. Interview took me 27 days. Whoa! I got reached out to on LinkedIn. Literally, got everything done within 27 days because I took ownership and accountability of that pace. And right. if someone wants you, they will show up. Right. We got on the job in Doha, Qatar, in the middle. Oh of wow! Oh yeah, yeah. I, I had a business in Doha for a while. Yeah, yeah. And what, yeah. what year was it? Two, 2012. 2012. Women couldn't even drive. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to think if I was. No, we were there a little later than 2012. Okay. Um, I still have a drinking license from from Cutter. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you though, I I loved it. I did. Yeah. Did you? Mm -hmm. So where were you living? Were you living downtown in Doha? Uh, no, no, no. So that was just a trip. Yeah. Okay. We oh, that was just a trip. Okay. So where I was in Marseille was I was in, in Lumini in the Calanx area. Oh, beautiful. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Near the coast, on the coast. Yeah. Right. Yeah, in the clocks. Um, yeah, I love Marseille. It's uh, we have a place in Paris, and um, we get down to the south very often. And the you know, the the it's a different country. I mean, and the Marseillese will tell you that too. That you know, we're not we're not really France. We we predate France, right? I mean, it's been there. It's had its own culture for a long, long time. It's it's a beautiful place. Definitely well, port city. What were you doing in Marseille? Part of my MBA, I wanted to garner more international exposure and experience. So I said, "All right, I'm going to do it." And but and what was the connection to Marseille? Was there a business there that you were interning at? Yeah, so um, no, so Pitt Business School had um, had it in France, and I think they had it somewhere in South America. Okay. And I was so immersed in Miami with a lot of you know South American you know cultures <laughs> and different things, but. 
I, I wanted to do something a little bit different and I hadn't been to Europe, so why not? That's perfect. And Marseille is like the Miami of France. It's uh, they, I know, you know I, right? after yeah. being there, it <laughs> kind of made sense, but it's fine. They speak a different language. It's, it's well, it's a lot of North Africans. It's it's just, it's- uh, yeah. or, A lot of Egyptians too. Yeah, yeah, which is part of North Africa, I think. But yeah. the um, but but I think to, you know, and and what's cool, kind of cool in France is everyone's just French. They don't really ask you if you're African French or whatever. It's it's that's uh, true. You are kind of, right. Where some some areas and countries they do. They're yeah, like, oh, you're from the north. You're different. Yeah, but it's it's pretty cool. So um, so then you came back. So you got your MBA. You lived in Marseille. You did part of your program there you accelerated into Honeywell and you right away got into a pretty big project there, right? When you're doing a merger M&A group, M&A project? Yeah, so I I was always first in, last out, right? I had the hard and soft skills that I knew once I got into the door, that was my controllable. Just get in the door and then I can control what I bring to the table. And I was a sponge. I was so coachable. I was learning from every angle that I could. I didn't go to happy hours. I literally would stay late and be there with the last CEO or segment business leader that had the light on. And I'd go and ask questions. Um, I made that choice. And because I made that choice, I had, you know, realized the effect of having a champion on your behalf. Once you get a champion on your behalf, then they can ultimately get into a sponsor where they talk about your name when you're not in the room. So then my name started to kind of get out there. And um, at the time, to be honest with you, all the roles that I ever was in in my whole entire life had never existed before I was in them. Wow, so they're ever. making positions for you, then you're just, yes. you're it's, you're that emerg- you're in that emerging talent, that kind of the, what are they, whatever they call it, top talent or whatever, they're, you know, different yeah. companies of different I was on the right side of the bell curve. Right. <laughs> right. I was on the right side of the bell curve. And, yeah, and then it started with marketing best bet, and and I won some awards there. And then it was well, let's see if she's really got it. Mm. Let's let's put her in some heat. Let's yeah. put her where she can't hide because at the time Dave Cody was the CEO of Honeywell, and he had done a tremendous job with all the stuff that was going with Honeywell and GE. I mean, he really kind of brought the company back. Really had very very strict policy and was real conservative in his spend. And, you know, Wall Street was pushing him to do more M&A at the time. And sure. he wanted to make sure that he kind of left at the top with, with the share price. So what an opportunity. He always wanted to be in water. And uh, he just didn't know exactly what, but he had hired Booz and Allen, McKinsey, all the big consultant groups. And they always came back with the same temp- template slides, but nothing ever came out of the strategy. So then he said, you know what? I want six of the top Honeywell people on this. They're going to be in a war room. They have five to eight weeks and I want a strategy done. Wow. And that was, I got pulled into it. And um, yeah, and I was all, definitely and all, <laughs> and all eyes are on you, right? Like the, Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, it was great, but I loved it. Right. It was like, so my wheelhouse ambiguity, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. That's cool. So you, you're part of a $10 billion acquisition and then you ended up operating that new entity. Is that right? Am I getting that right? No, they acquired organically and inorganically, but this is what's interesting about it. Mm. So that was in 2015. And what was, what was cool was not only creating the strategy, but we also created the organizational design in which it would get implemented within the broader 
Honeywell Enterprise because as a $40 billion company, you've got a lot of like business units and different, you know, core competencies in the different business units. So it started off with no one wanting it and right. prove, prove I'm right. It's not a good idea. Prove I'm right. It is a good idea. A lot of that stuff happening sure. in cultures. And uh, we overcame that and everybody wanted it. So then at, at that point, I was already on my next thing, right? As as a high performance person, I didn't bask in that. It, it was a career changer for me. I was in What's, this investment pipeline, but yeah. I didn't even go to the presentation because I was already working on building a business in Europe for our paints and coatings. I was already in that mentality. Well, in parallel, I also was the right hand to our segment leader at the time. Think of her as segment CEO of the business unit. Okay. Um, and she had to recreate the whole entire strategies of the residents and chemicals business. So I became her right hand because we didn't have a marketing director. So I became interim that. After that. <laughs> so you're doing strategy and the, all the figuring out the new marketing for this. And, and yeah. what it ended up being was, it was kind of like, I don't want to say her interview, but kind of, it was an interview for her to be able to lead this to its own spinoff from Honeywell because Honeywell was moving towards more fast cycle software and we were a chemicals business. Right. Cash cow, very different business model, right? So it just yep. didn't fit where they were going. So that was kind of, can you do it? And right. how can you stand it up? So I did it at a Honeywell level and then I did it at a spinoff kind of level that I you know, ended up doing some transition work for. So I and left that, with them. And that did get spun off and then you were you were with that business, a 10, was it a $10 billion spinoff? No, so interesting enough, the 10 billion was more acquisition and bolt-on technology capability, sure. okay? Um, where this was actually, what do you need to get rid of to bring on, right? right? right so right, it's right. like, hey, if you wanna bring something in aerospace, you have to get, give the brakes and pads away. Right, you gotta right? sell something to buy something sort of a thing, right? And you gotta kind of, have right? capacity because in the organization. Size. Because yeah. of the size. So um, the performance materials and technologies had a big spinoff um, in different pieces. This business in particular was about 1.5 billion and a 40 billion. Wow. But we were, from a cash cow perspective, huge in performance materials technology. So we went off. And at that point, I was looked at and said, Hey, we want you to come. And pretty much most people were, were kind of forced to come. Like whoever was spending 75% of their time had to be there. Right. But I was very fortunate that, you know, the CEO sat me down and said, Look, legally you gotta come right i mean like you're coming with us but i understand what you're building here at honeywell too i want you here you know will you come if not i will get you know the chief hr of honeywell to sign off that you can stay mm. if that's what you want to do so i decided hey what an opportunity to know how a 40 billion dollar company operates and a 1.5 and my only right. ask was i want to be in charge of a, a PL. I oh, cool. want to be in charge of financials. So I carved out that role, which ended up being $150 million business in the 1.5. So 10% is not bad. That's great. Well, the, uh, for the listeners, the P&L is a profit and loss statement, which basically means you're running the show. You get to call the shots. You're responsible for w wins and losses in that business unit. Is that is that a fair assessment? 100%. Yeah. You know better than me. Come on. Yeah, I just, you know, I want to make sure I'm getting it right. But um, no, but that's really interesting. So you're, this is a very full-time job. I mean, you're super busy. Mm -hmm. How did you get pulled back into meeting and, and helping other athletes who were thinking about, you know, working through transitions themselves? 
Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and, and this is a little ad for my one of my favorite brands for Nirvana Water Sciences, where I happen to be the CEO. But I wanted to share with you why I became the CEO. You know, I, I didn't have to get a new job. I didn't have to come to this company. It was some, a company I've been talking to for over a year before I joined them. Uh, I was absolutely enamored with their science, with HMB, uh, beta-hydroxy, beta-metabutyrate, which which amplifies protein synthesis. And, you know, I'm 54. The older I get, the more that matters because as we age, you know, as we get past 30, we start losing five to 6% of our muscle mass every year. And, you know, I'm a guy who likes to get out there, get active, have adventure. And I like to, you know, ski powder and, and with helicopters. I like to surf bigger waves. I like to free dive. I, I like to move. I like to run. I like to trail run. Um, I like to hike. And all those things require lean muscle mass. So I was formerly mentoring through Pitt. Um, they have their life skills, um, Forever Panther kind of organization there. And for me, I always wanted to say thank you and give back. I'm such a big believer in that. Yeah. Two athletes became four, became like 10, became formal, informally like 40 athletes. And I, wow. I started to say like, I can't take it on. If I can't do something 150%, Right. It's really hard for me to want to do something halfway. It's just not how I'm built. Yeah. And then I got approached by the athletes in particular that they were like, you should be just doing this. Like, I, I get you're good over here. I get you're making great money over here. I get you're traveling the world. Like they're telling me all these great things. <laughs> yeah. And they said, but you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. We're athletes and we don't ask for help. But for some reason, we're asking you for help. Right. What are you going to do about it? And at right. that point, that's when I knew I'd be grossly negligent because you've got one life to live. And if I live my life in the lens of will, you know, will for power and success, what am I really doing? I, right. I need to go more, more towards fulfillment. So what can I contribute and leave as a legacy? And that's when I realized this was more of my, my why. Right. So you, you had a, you had great gifts in business and you were obviously doing very, very well in business, but did you feel like this was more like your purpose? Like this was what oh, yeah, you, were, you were put on the earth to do? This was my why. There was yeah. not a shadow of doubt to walk in my purpose and help. Literally my purpose is to shatter limiting beliefs. It's wow. bigger than just like an athlete thing. It really is shattering limiting beliefs. And my mission is to reframe athleticism as people view it. Oh, wow. So let's, skills. so let's go back to shattering limiting beliefs. Why is that your purpose? What, what, what does that, when you shatter a limiting belief, what does that do for the world? Or why does that, why is that such a powerful, powerful idea? It, it unlocks so much untapped potential for those that don't take the first step. Right. So, all I'm doing is providing an environment to show that you can and that you get to and that you literally have one life to live. So why not? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. It, it, it's, it's so simple, right? Like, let's not complicate. Let's not complicate the story. It really is around a lot of times we don't take the first step because of our insecurity internally or someone else's insecurity imposed on you just because they can't do it doesn't mean that's your right your insecurity and that's when you know proximity and getting people around you that let you live in your purpose is extremely important and sometimes you have to let go of those that don't no and i, th I mean i think look it, it 
shows it shows people human potential, right? I mean, this is we're capable of. You quote this in your book. We're capable of so much more than we know, right? I mean, I've been saying that for years. I I love that whole theory. I mean, the Kick Aspirational podcast is based on the idea of how to help people break through barriers in their life, and I think this is shattering these ideas that don't deserve to exist basically is the first great step towards actually going and doing something that maybe you didn't think you could do it's it's powerful and so then your mission again tell me so so shattering shattering these these ideas is your purpose what, what's your mission again can you say that one more time reframing athleticism so and how does how do those connect how does shattering those you know core beliefs lead to reframing athleticism as a mission yeah so if you think about where it all starts right so even if you're an athlete even if you're like a corporate athlete because i believe anybody can be athletic anybody can apply real-time athleticism in different ways now there's nothing like hands-on playing d1 sports and living in no doubt okay uh there's a, a clear distinction there but for me the shattering limiting beliefs is what ultimately is the deep down where if you're thinking about the athlete, they're actually a human that mm. happens to be really good at sports. Right. And what happens is, is they lose their human connectivity. And I want to shatter those limiting beliefs of what they really want to do. They're just living their life out in this grandiose way where they've got the external world, right? That they have a reputation. They're breaking all these stereotypes through sport. Well, right. when they don't have sport anymore. All they are is they're human. And I'm trying to humanize and reframe athleticism to be able to repurpose the concepts of athleticism, but take it up to go pro in life. Right. And let's change the dialogue, the trajectory and conversation to be able to build upon, well, don't tell me you can't be a part of this because you're not a D1 athlete. No, no, no. You have limiting beliefs. Everyone does. So you're part of this community. Now, however you want to engage in it, up to you. I'm not going to force you to be here. I want people who want to be here. And that's where the athlete kind of comes in. And all I'm going to do is provide the safe space for you to be vulnerable, to get the human side of you to lead forward. Right. No, I mean, I think that's like you said, you don't have to, you know, that would be one of my questions. Do do I have to be an athlete to read this book? And I think you've already answered that. This isn't just for athletes. It's helping people reframe their lives, regardless of where they've come from or where they've been. And and I think to your point, and especially if you've been living in the spotlight and thinking this is who you are because that's what the world says, when all of a sudden the spotlight goes away and no one's telling you who you are anymore, then who are you, right? Then, I mean, who are you when you're alone in a dark room is really the question because that's probably who you really are. And limiting yourself and limiting your capability is just putting yourself back in a box you don't deserve to be in. I think that's that's those kinds of things are so powerful. So. So you're you're mentoring these athletes, and there were I read in in the article, uh, the, the Canvas article, that there were some mental some some mental health issues that you were helping them work through. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Is that something you can talk about? Yeah. So there's a wide array of different mental health that hits athletes, right? So I'm obviously not going to cover the bandwidth of it, but yeah, a lot of athletes they subject who they are, their, their total being, because they go all in. And when you go all in, there's not one piece of you that is not part of that process. So every stage in life, you are preparing yourself 
to perform at the highest level. Now, at the beginning start before sports is a conversation, you have upbringing and everyone has a different upbringing. Everybody has a different touch point to sports. Right. There's some there's some, you know, regions of the world where like if you're not going to play sport, like who are you? You know, I mean, there's pressures to I don't want it's not mom and dad's dream, right? So you've got these things happening pretty early on and then the competitive landscape to even get noticed at a collegiate level right. is ever more Right. That's the first one of the first big filters. I mean, it might be a filter getting into club, but then after club sports and stuff, now you're getting into this is like one of the first big filters of an 100%. athlete's life, right? Yeah, hundred percent. So you're always being judged for your physical capability sets, and what happens is as you progress and become a top five percent, because the data says that to make it to a collegiate level, you are the top 5%, period. Right. There's just only right. so much space. And then if you go play pro, then you're 2% of the 5%, right. which is an even smaller sliver. And yeah. then Olympians <laughs> and stuff gets even smaller. Right. But all of these different things impact the athlete. So they've been able to overcome based off of their physical capability sets. But what happens is, is sometimes their emotional capability sets or lack thereof is compartmentalized. That is why some players can lose a brother or sister, a mom or dad, and have the best performance ever on the field right. because they can effectively compartmentalize. What happens is a lot of athletes have the adapt or die mentality because they were forced in fight or flight mode early on in life right. and sports was their mechanism to get out. Yeah. When you don't have sport or when sport is ending and you don't have that mechanism, then you have an emotional just outpour where you don't know how to handle it. And the stuff you've compartmentalized, you have never gone back to revisit. Right. I was terrible at it, to be honest with you. So you add all of those pieces up and then there is no one size fits all. So they're trying to talk about mental health like it is one size fits all. But there's <laughs> because everyone has a different upbringing. Everyone has a different interaction to the world, mental health or right. mental strength. So you add all those things up and it's a recipe for boiling water. Eventually it will go over, but it's what environment are you in and what proximity of people are you around when it boils over that can culminate into being able to manage it like I did. Right? right, I had two weeks where I decided to make my choice because I had my family around me. I chose to put myself in a more secluded, focused area. Well, not everyone has that luxury. Right. Right, so they may go back and- <laughs> Maybe it's worse than where they were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you add all those things up and um, you deal with some some real things of, you know, some people wanting to take their life. They just don't see it. They don't see it. They don't see the vision like they did in sport. And, um, it's it's sad. It's sad because they only see themselves in sport. No, and I think you're, you know, I noticed in the book, uh, getting back to your book, The Athlete Advantage, I notice a lot of what you talk about in the book is sort of self-awareness, right? It's, I mean, a lot of mental health is being aware that you aren't the thing that's, you know, bothering you or that's triggering you or that's, you know, and of course there's chemical imbalances and things that people yeah. do need, you know, real psychiatric help for. 
but there's a lot too where um, even like, you know, they're doing like at 40 teaching medical schools now, they're really digging into like psilocybin and, and other, other psychedelic research. Yeah. And, and part of what they're finding, and you know, and this is, I'm paraphrasing, but um, there's a great documentary called Fast, Fantastic Fungi that, that, you know, it goes to Johns Hopkins and interviews some of these, some of these great researchers, but they're saying, you know, look, it's allowing people to separate themselves from the thing that's holding them captive or hostage. And they're able to see that they aren't their depression. They aren't their, their the PTSD. That's not them. And it, that space kind of like meditation yeah. allows you to, you know, keep it at arm's length and manage it rather than have it consume you and, and be everything. Let's maybe we can jump to the, is, is, am I getting that right? By the way, is, is that part of yeah. what you're trying to get to with the, with some of the awareness things that you're talking about in the book? Hundred percent, and and the ownership of it. Yeah, right. You right. can't rely on others to get you there. You have to make the choice. Now you can have people provide resources and stuff, but you have to make that choice, right? You have to learn who you are. So a big thing I talk about is there is no I in team. We hear that often, right? Right, right, right. But there. There is an M and an E in it. It's like the oxygen mask when you fly. So you go to fly and the oxygen, you know, go escapes out of the the cabin. You put your mask on first before you help others. That's so you don't pass out before you can help others. Right. It's the same concept here. And it's, it's how do you, how do you not only educate someone, but also help them apply it and show them how the problem is, is there's all this education out there. And some of it's fantastic, but no one ever gives the full tool sets. No one shows the how, and I'm trying to show the how. Right. In fact, one of the things that I love about this book is at the end of each chapter, I think more or less, mm-hmm. you have this section that's sort of success beyond game day playbook recap, and then it'll be the the, the, ch- wow. the chapter title, right? And it's how to go beyond setting goals, day one, sign them, now you have the contract, identify the problem, peel back the layers, lay the groundwork, and flawless operate uh, operationalization. Um, so Honeywell. It's so, but it's good though. Can Would you mind breaking this down for us a little bit and just taking us through the the, the core concepts that, that make this book work so well? Yeah, so I, I am big on a couple of things. One, is we talk about goals, we talk about horizons, we talk about 20, 30 years, like the long-term game. That's fantastic, you should, you should absolutely do it. But you have to hold yourself accountable. So the biggest thing for me is the act of writing things down. Yeah. Writing things down is so paramount. Like journaling, yeah, it is It is so important because there's a lot of things that happen. Not It's not only the act of writing, but your brain, like you see it. Right. Visualization. Yeah, for sure. It it hits a lot of different components. And then I don't even care if you go back to it. Because as far as I'm concerned, you write it down. It's already triggered in multiple different. You just put that code in your brain, your brain, your subconscious is working on it, whether you're going back to it consciously or not. Right. Exactly. And then I go a step further and say, well, sign it. That's the most important contract of your life. Wow. Everything else outside of that is just icing on the cake. So when you sign it, that is a very serious thing. And when when you sign things and learn the impact and implication of signing things, well, now that's your first connect the dot into the real world, as people say, even though right. you've been living in the real world. Your name on a piece of paper 
if you just see it as that means nothing. You saying you are going to hit X, Y, and Z things and sign it saying I am held accountable for it. I have put it out. I am doing this. Right. Where's a lot more weight. So these are specific near term goals that have, do you put a date on them? So goals, I do short, medium, and long term. Got it. I try to stay within six to eight. Typically, four to six is ideal, so you don't get overwhelmed until you, you wait. Get four to six and six to eight. What goals? Days, weeks. Oh, goals. Okay, sorry. Right. Goals. So, so right. you can re, so you can retain them. Exactly. And then what I do is say I have six, like for for just simplistic purposes, I'll do two short, two medium, two long term. Right. And and okay. what what time frames are short, medium, and long term for you? Okay, so short is typically one to two, three years. Okay. Okay, so that's kind of like what you do every year. I'm gonna hit this, I'm gonna lose this weight, you know, whatever, right? <laughs> right. Uh, or I wanna get this promotion, blah, blah, blah. Then medium is anywhere from like three to like eight. Okay. Once you start hitting 10 plus, you're long-term. Right. Right, and that's where you are today what you thought about five to 10 years ago. Sure. Right? So I Absolutely. believe in the power of long-term. So now, how do you handle it? Now, you take each of those goals. I start with the short-term. A lot of them are, to be honest with you, most people put short-term that they actually can hit. Mm. Most people put long-term that's hard to hit on purpose because you have time to get there. Short-term, right. you wanna feel accomplishment. Me, I do it differently. I do it very hard each year. I do it even harder in the medium. And I talk about like my vision is empowering 1 billion athletes. Wow. Do you think in my lifetime I'm gonna hit 1 billion athletes? Maybe not, but I'm gonna leave the information and legacy to do so, right? But so it's comfortable. It's a statement that you have to go global, right? I mean, that's 100%. basically, yeah. And I do two week sprints. So what I do is in under each of them, I have what are the critical objectives? What are my resources? And what are my behaviors that I need to hit it? Hmm. Simple. Wow. And then once I hit it, I will reward myself by, because we never celebrate the little roses. We never celebrate the little wins. Uh, so if you're not going to appreciate the 1% gains, then why are you ever gonna change what you've always done? Yeah, I mean, it, it, this Jim Collins talks about this a lot. I love this, where he, he talks about mechanisms and right. you know it's, it's great to have values, but you've gotta have mechanisms that force you to do them. And one of the things he says, it, it, you know, a little different way of saying the same thing. He's like, you know, uh, he has this Gordon, the guided missile concept where he's like, you know, if you have values and you have mechanisms that kind of force you to make choices on a daily basis in the direction you want to go, you're going to end up where you want to be. You may not know what that destination is at this exact moment, but you'll know that you're going to be in a place that you're really going to love because you've made all these value choices right along the way. But I think to your point, it's also good to have a, I love that concept, but I think the Gordon the Guided Missile is a little bit like, okay, but are you really? <laughs> Let's actually talk about what we want in the next 10 years, because otherwise, you know, you might you might end up someplace and be like, wait a minute, this is really what yeah, I And wanted. that's what I tell athletes. I said, if you have the opportunity for your name, image, likeness, plan out for 10 to 20 years. Right. Hell yeah, because if you don't, you may be aligning yourself with could be detrimental down the road, or you may not own who you are. Like, right. that's crazy to me. Um, but yeah, I do two week sprints on everything I do and that's my pulse check. And then every quarter I literally will sit down and say, what did I say I was going to do? What did I actually do? And oh, then yeah. do oh, I pivot? Do I improvise? Yeah. What do I continue? 
stop and change. That's great. Well, I've also had it, you know, I've been fortunate. I mean, a lot of success, had success and failure, but one of the things that I tell people is be careful what you wish for, you might get it. I know. You know like, well, because sometimes you think you want something and then when you yeah. get there, you're like, oh, this wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. Or, you know, I thought back there that this is what would be something very different than what it actually is in reality, right? And, and that's that's fair too. Then you get to change and reset and figure out the next thing you want to do. Um, so, okay, so that's that's how you're setting setting the goals. Um, so the, the second big, big thing is, is problems, right? Yeah. So we all do this. We all tolerate problems. Oh, well, let me just give that person a day. Let me give them an extra hour, you know? And for the rare occasion that it does make sense, okay, fine. But what happens is we tolerate problems and we're never root causing what is truly happening. And when you tolerate problems, listen, a red flag is a red flag, period. Now you may want it to be a different hue of red, but it's a flag. Right. <laughs> so what you need to do is be honest with yourself when you start to see signs and then just don't repeat it. So once you see the problem itself, and guess what? Sometimes it could be yourself. Right. And it could be that you're projecting onto others, or it could be that you're, you know, who, who you are on the inside because you haven't healed yourself is bringing that negative energy. So you've got to be very, very honest with yourself to be able to connect the dots there. But I find if you do that and you tolerate problems, a project that you could have killed in two months ended up lasting six to like 10 years. Right. Right. And I say this, whether it's, you know, firing somebody who isn't the right person or, yeah. you know, whatever it is, I, I've never met somebody that said, you know, boy, I wish we were, would have waited six more months to figure out if we should have fired that person or not. You know, she was like, why did I wait so long to do that? Oh, or, yeah. you know, the other one is if, uh, I like to say, you know, if, if, if everyone else is the problem, it's probably not everybody else, right? <laughs> no, no, seriously, you're right. So things are probably put, and, and I think to your point, you've got to, you've got to look in the mirror. You've got to say, you know, am I, what am I contributing to this problem and how do we fix that? Yeah. Um, go ahead. Were you going to, did I interrupt you? No, no, no. So I kind of hit two, right? Tolerate the problems and like peeling back the layers. Cause sometimes it could be you, right? And you right. really need to dig into the why of things. So that's the science part of me. I always would hypothesize. I'd always be like, what's my objective? What are my resources that I have? Right. It's context versus control. I don't need you to tell me how to do it. I just need you to tell me the parameters, the tool sets I have and the right. time frame we need to get it done because I understand how to get creative, innovative, and learn how to communicate to those that just live in efficiency. But what I do is I can understand that the we, not the me aspect yeah. as well. Um, no, for sure. Yeah, no, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so that's, that's the biggest thing. And then once you ask yourself, you know, I find most people say, okay, well, but why? But they only ask that maybe once or twice. The reason I say six whys is very, very uh, intentional. Right. You can, athletes, we skirt around it. We are master compartmentalizers. We can say the same thing 20 times and most people will just be like, move on. Like interviews, you see it all the time. Right. The thing that I go is I want to go below the surface. The reason I want to go below, below the surface is because that's where you're human. Mm. That's who you really are, not what the world, external world. I want to know interiorly like what you, what makes you tick. Right. So when you go to why like, three, maybe four, you're running out of excuses to say the same thing. Right. So by the fifth and sixth, what I realized, like a good example is I was talking to a football player and um, he was like, well, I want to make it to the NFL. I'm like, okay, well, why? 
And he was like, for the glory, man, like, you know, I want to change my life. I'm like, but why? Yeah. And he was like, yeah, so I can buy whatever I want. I'm like, okay, but why? And he looked at me, he's like, why do you keep asking why? I'm like, because I think there's more to it. Because we're still on the surface. Yeah, the Ferrari isn't the why. There you go. And then right. then by the fifth why, he looked at me and a tear in his eye. I'll never forget it. He had a tear in his eye and he goes, you know what, Sammy? I don't want to sleep on the floor. Whoa. I don't want to sleep on the floor. And he goes, and I never want my kids or my kids' kids to have to eat a syrup sandwich ever. Whoa. Okay. Bingo. Eureka. We have arrived. Yeah. So now I understand what your driver is. Now yeah. we can get to work. Now we can parallel path a few things. I don't want you to have a plan B. I want you to go all in, fall forward fast on what you're, I want you to go play pro and I want you to do whatever is required. But that doesn't mean we can't parallel path a few things. Sure. So things can start working in your favor and you can leverage your sports vehicle for your next sport, which will be life. <laughs> no, and, and it's and it also gets into like, hey, and when you go pro, let's make sure that your post pro career doesn't have you eating syrup sandwiches and sleeping on the floor either. Right. It's yeah. those are deep emotions that you can really harness and leverage. And that can help you put the discipline in your life so you don't make the mistakes that that other people have made that, you know, don't allow them yeah. to have that 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 long game. Um, I have a really good friend who's he was on, he was on my board, he's a very successful businessman. Um, sort of like he's a good, very close friend and mentor. And uh, <laughs> his deep why is because he doesn't want to live in a trailer eating cat food. <laughs> and, and, I'm like, and he's, you know, he's the, does not have to worry about that, but that is what drives him. That's why in his seventies, he will never, he'll, he'll never stop working. Cause he, I mean, it's, and it's not like he's working, you know, 15 hour days anymore, but, but he, he has to be productive. And that's always gnawing at the back of his mind. Um, and I think that's it's you're absolutely right. And it doesn't have to be some kind of a rational issue, right? It's it's like what's the emotional thing that's driving you, that's forcing this, that's that's making you play at this, like embrace that, engage that, and apply it. Is that it, how, how do you leverage that at that point? I guess is what I'm I'm, I'm making statements, but I'm really trying to ask a question. How no, do you, no, how no, do you leverage mean, that? That makes sense. I mean, that's what we do. I, to to be honest with you, there is no one size fits all. And sure. it always like makes people roll their eyes or like, oh my god. You know, like most people like to put it in some template, this and that. And I said, well, that's there not is the no yeah, yeah. Well, you have to meet people where they're at. Why? Because I need to understand your underlying why, because then we get to go to work. And not only do we get to go to work, but we have to figure out the how to get it done. The way to, you know, to get it done is understand the attitudes and behaviors to make sure that we build your habits and rituals. Right. So it's not just educating and helping you apply, but I need to instill certain attitudes and behaviors that maybe you're not accustomed to. Maybe you don't know what you don't know. Maybe you're unconsciously incompetent and you don't even know to ask the question. Right. That's where I start. I meet you where you're at and I don't talk down. We talk together. We talk like we're a team and we figure it out and we build a life plan. And guess what? We do two week sprints. We check in. They hold me as accountable as I hold them. And it becomes like a real community thing where now I give them tool sets so they go back to the community. And when they want to give back, they talk about, you know, the why strategy. They talk about the daily boxes. I my stuff, I don't I don't want it to be proprietary where someone can't use it. Right. I want them to leverage it, make it their own, and make sure that it's rooted in the right behavior set. 
Well, I think absolutely. I mean, and I think you've always done a great job of taking all of that and articulating it, you know, in a book where people can read it. And obviously, and you've got a workbook coming out too that follows this. Is that right? Did you tell me that? Yeah. So the applied knowledge is is pretty important. So one of the things that I thought was missing was how do you self-pace the learning, Mm. provide the tool sets for them to build their brand through it along with the behaviors and attitudes right progresses that the book is the basis but what it does is it actually gives the pause to reflect it it does the pause to connect the dots between sports life and business and it it makes it super digestible in the language that they understand which is sports so it's a real self-progression and it's it's heavy on activation it's intense and it meets people where they're at I think that's so good. A really good buddy of mine from from university, from school, who's a who's a great author um, and and speaker, Rob Bell. He does this now. He does he does two days with people who come with a they have to come with a project, an active project, mm-hmm. and he does small groups and they get together and they basically it's it's breaking down those projects into because when you're just doing it by yourself, you get stuck and you're yeah, yeah. It becomes overwhelming. I mean, probably not for you, but for a lot of us. And uh, <laughs> you write a book in five weeks. Book the rest called. of us are like a book, but the <laughs> but I but I think the you know the, your point is when you break it down and you reflect and you've got a framework and then you attack each section, you can get it done right. Yeah. Um, it's it's amazing, and I think the workbook. I, I can't wait to see this. We may well have to revisit that, but you know, a workbook is like okay, you've read the book, and Oprah does this really well, by the way, when she does her her big. Uh, tours and stuff, you know, she has all these speakers, but what you get when you go in, and I've actually been in an Oprah event, uh, one of the three men there, um, but you get this, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but you, you, you get this basically a workbook for the event where you're taking notes on each speaker and they kind of help you there. They have a note guide. And then there's a break after each speaker where you have to apply this to yourself and she's pulling people on stage and they're, she's having them talk about how they're going to apply this. And you'll see, you're seeing just like these big, I think at that time it was a Twitter screen where people are commenting and, and, and sharing their information. It's incredibly interactive. Even the stage is in the middle of the, of the auditorium um, because everyone's supposed to be actively participating. I just think that's, you know, it's, it's great to get the knowledge, but what are you doing with it? You can't just read the menu. You got to, you got to eat the, got to make the food and then eat it. Right. Maybe even sell it. Um, I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, what else do you want to tell us about the athlete advantage? Start before you're ready. <laughs> Start before you yeah, all, take all the leap, it. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we all can do it. And, and look, there's nothing, there's nothing complicated here. It's uncomfortable. Yes. Complicated. No we make things hard right so honor your capacity to step into your greatness or not that's your choice you get to make that choice and uh if if you make the choice and i'm confident you will right there's going to be tools that enable you to self-pace it so you don't feel like you're on an island by yourself and um it's really about building the community side and i know you're big on that too and and everything everything. at nirvana i mean what I love about it is it's data backed, but it's it's so rooted in community and people embracing the brand as their own. Right. That's what I got when I when I was at HPLT. That was what I took. I had an unbelievable 
connectivity with everyone, but I felt that that brand was a part of like now my life. Right. You know, and that's what you're driving. And um, you, you know, well, it only comes with someone who is very keenly aware and has a company that is keenly aware of who they are and why. Thank you for that. No, I, and I think you're right. I mean, that was, I said that too, I, I, when I was talking with uh, uh, Luke, we were talking, or yeah, uh, we were talking about this. And then when I was, um, I was on the phone with, with Brian the other day who started HPLT and, you know, I said to him, look, the event was amazing. I was, I was frankly intimidated even th thinking about coming, I was invited by our CMO, Layla Corey, who's an amazing athlete. Oh, I love Layla. Yeah. I mean, even with a shoulder that she couldn't use, she was out there doing one arm push-ups, and yeah, Hello. she's, she's nuts. And, you know, and, and let's, I, I think I was the oldest person there. Um, not entirely sure, but I was definitely up there and, you know, you're seeing younger athletes who are capable of amazing things who work out much more than I do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was just, it was impressive but it was also incredibly inclusive. Um, I didn't feel left out. I felt incredibly motivated to do things I didn't think I could do or push myself a little further than I thought I could, which I still love to do even you know, as an old man here. Um, but it was just so much fun. And, and, and I said to, what I said to him was, I said, you know, all of that was great. The thing that really surprised me was how cool everybody was who was there. You know, if, if, you, don't know, if you don't know who the asshole is, it's probably you. Um, but you know, so I guess that's good advice. Maybe it was me, but it was it was just so. I mean, I was like, wow, you really curated a great room of people here. Like, yeah. I didn't know anybody going in besides Layla. I met everyone I met was just seemed to be wonderful. I mean, the last day you and I and Olivia kind of ended up hanging out and and uh, having some some fun together. Yeah, and it was just ah, it was just wonderful. And I think when you find those communities, you know, it just keeps drawing you back in, right? It's like I'll share this. Enough. This yeah. was my note to myself from HPLT. Oh yeah, what is it? It says do hard stuff. Yeah. Get uncomfortable. Yeah. Be okay not always being the most in shape. Oh yeah. Embrace the suck. Embrace the suck. <laughs> yeah. If that isn't really the culmination of what we talked about today, like, absolutely. I don't know what is, right? That is life, right? That's one of my one of my favorite the opening line of The Road Less Traveled, right? Um Scott Peck is Oh yeah. Life is difficult. Yeah. You know, let's start there. Let's set the expectation. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much money you got. It doesn't matter where you were born. Life's going to be hard. Um, yeah. Then what? <laughs> now what? Now where do we go from here? That's where the fun happens. That's where, that's where we grow. That's where we learn. Here's a question. So this is one of my favorite uh, questions. Have you learned more? And I think, you know, it's sort of an obvious question. Have you learned more in life from your successes or your failures? Failures, hands down. Yeah. Without anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think, you know, the successes are nice. We, we play to win, but that's, that's not where we learn, is it? So for me, it's less about, okay, so a what, how, and why, right? So football player, they want to win a championship, right? How are yeah. they going to, they go to Super Bowl, right? Yeah. Well, why? Well, it's because they want the ring. They, they want the glory of it. Sure. Right? So how many times do people win Super Bowls in their careers? Well, rarely, if ever. Okay. So it becomes less about the ring itself and the Super Bowl itself and more about the journey to the ship. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's I think that's so good. I think that's so good. Well, it, I mean, yeah, I would, you know, so I'm in a, a fund with Aaron Rodgers, who's one of the 
best quarterbacks of all time. And, uh, and if you look at his stats, maybe he is the greatest of all time. But he's been on a team that hasn't always been, you know, hasn't always had the parts that you need to to get to a super. They, they, he has won one Super Bowl, but mm-hmm. you know, people would compare him to Tom Brady, and they'd be like, "Well, Tom Brady has however many rings, right. and you know, like seven or eight or however many he has." And I said, "Well, you know, there's, I don't think a Super Bowl is a is a individual sport. Right? That's a team accomplishment." And, you know, the, there's a lot of differences between the Green Bay Packers and the Patriots, especially, you know, during yeah. that era um, and the money and the talent, all those sorts of things. But, you know, there's the other side of it, which is playing for a team like the Packers, which is arguably one of the greatest football experiences in the NFL. I mean, it's literally feels like you're playing college ball with that level of passion and fan commitment. I mean, they have an they have like an 80 year waiting list to buy season passes at Lambeau, even though Green Bay is like a teeny town. Um, yeah. It's just, it's, you know, so I, I think to your point, like, hey, there's lots of ways to win. What do you want? Is the ring the most important thing? Is the team the most important thing? Is your, is that community the most important thing? And, and is the, you know, winning a Super Bowl kind of like a graduation, like, hey, you did it, you know, congratulations versus, yeah. 